Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling William Von Hippel. Professor Von Hippel teaches in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. He has published over 100 articles, chapters, and edited books in evolutionary psychology, and his work has been widely reported in the media, including the New York Times and USA Today. In The Social Leap, Professor Von Hippel uses the latest research in evolutionary science to chart how our ancestors' responses to social challenges are at the root of who we are today. We sat down to have a discussion about these findings and their implications for our past, present, and future. So joining us in our offices here at HarperCollins, we have William Von Hippel, author of The Social Leap. And thanks so much for joining us. Totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So to start us off, explain for us, what is The Social Leap? What do you refer to when you say that in the title? So The Social Leap is the term I use for the move that our ancestors made when they left the rainforest and went to the savannah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really a leap because, in fact, the forest left them behind. They didn't jump out of it. And it didn't wasn't really a leap in the sense that it took a few million years. But over that time, what made us successful on the savannah was leaping to a social solution to the dilemma of these new predators that now had access to us that we were safe from when we were chimp-like beings in the rainforest. So the social leap is that move to cooperation and that move to collection to collective action that made us such a success. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because, you know, like you said, this social leap that made us what we are was about collaboration, working together. But um, the way evolution works, as you talk about in the book, is that for changes to be passed down, they must benefit the individual, even if it's at the cost of the group. So how does this make us more social and not less social? Yeah, that's a great question. So our chimp-like ancestors, assuming that they're similar to chimps today, were probably Mm -hmm. not very cooperative animals. Mm -hmm. They can work together when they need to, but they don't do it very effectively. By and large, they compete more than they cooperate. Mm -hmm. In fact, one of the best ways to see that is if you look at a chimpanzee's eyes, they're all brown. They don't have the white around the edges like we do. What that means is that when a chimp notices something, he doesn't want his fellow chimps to know what he's seen. He wants to get it first because he Mm -hmm. figures they'll probably compete with him. We evolved white sclera to our eyes, which means that when I look at something, I want everyone to know because they'll probably help me get it. Mm -hmm. And so it was that big psychological change that was necessary to move to the savannah. And what made that work so well was that for the first time in our line, our individual goals aligned with our group goals. That which made us individually success also made our group a success, which was cooperating in our mutual defense on the savannah, probably by throwing stones to defend ourselves from lions, hyenas, other predators, because that would have required collective action. One of our ancestors throwing stones wouldn't be very effective, but 30 or 40 of our ancestors throwing mm-hmm. stones would be very effective. Mm-hmm. So in terms of these social changes, like specific social behaviors, how much of these are socially passed down through word of mouth teaching versus genetic things that we just know in our brains to do without right. really knowing how or why? I know that's a great question as well. So once we took the cognitive pathway. Mm -hmm. We went down the road of bigger brains and less brawn. Evolution had no choice but to sacrifice genetic control of our behavior. Mm -hmm. We have way more neural connections in the order of trillions than we have base pairs in our entire genome in the order of billions. And so the uh, 
what that means is that your brain has to develop by virtue of environmental input. So you can't be born knowing to cooperate and knowing how to cooperate like an animal might be, mm -hmm. but what you can be born with is a proclivity to cooperate. So we enjoy cooperation. We feel good when we work together. When we've worked together on a project and it's a success, we have this great sense of teamwork. Chimpanzees don't have that experience, at least to the best of our knowledge. Mm -hmm. So we almost have these like built-in, I guess, starter kits, you could say, that are willing to learn these behaviors. No, that's, that's a great example. And so basically the way to think about it is that evolution tends to work with our emotions and motivations. If it gets us to enjoy the things that are in our genes' best interest, we will find a way as humans to get there. Mm -hmm. And so if it enjoys cooperating, we'll find ways to work together effectively. If it gets us to enjoy fat, sugar, and salt, we'll find ways to get the animals <laughs> that allow us to eat, get those macronutrients. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of this is about working together, but in the book you mentioned one of the reasons, especially our ancestors would work together, was um, because of the threat of another group, this between-group conflict that you talk about. Uh, but in today's society, we're becoming much more of a global society, economy, environment. So how much is globalism eliminating that between-group conflict and making us think of ourselves, the human race, as one group in a way that wouldn't have necessarily been true for our ancestors? Well, we're all hoping that it works effectively, but of Ideally. course, yeah, sometimes <laughs> yeah. it's better than others. The, it's human nature that when we're in a conflict with another group, we can suddenly dislike a group that we didn't even care about before, mm -hmm. that we felt they were neutral about, or maybe even positive. And so you see this all the time when there's a conflict with another country about trade or maybe about a particular treaty. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we don't like those people, and then we go right back to being their friends. So it's... It's always there, just ready to pop up at any time. And the hope is that if we can create a world where we, ban where we benefit much more from trade than we benefit from conflict, we can slowly dampen all those tendencies and start to see ourselves as one big group. But you need only look around the United States today to see the level of sort of partisan rancor and... Um, the, you know, it's, this has happened many times in the past, but the level, the degree to which people can't get along with each other because they think the other side doesn't share their goals. And when you see that, you realize that's that fundamental process we're talking about, this tendency to see my group as pitted against your group. So if you have an idea, I already start out not liking it mm -hmm. if you're on the other side, and even though we might be much better off if we could cooperate and find a way to achieve it. Mm -hmm. So this um, tribalism is just one example. Um, there are also gender roles, different things like that. These examples of how these beneficial evolutionary traits aren't necessarily things that are compatible with what we would consider today's equitable modern values. So how, yeah. how do you reconcile those differences? Is, does morality have a role in evolution? It, unfortunately, it doesn't. <laughs> At least mostly it doesn't. Evolution mm -hmm. itself is amoral. All it's looking for is effective solutions. And looking for, of course, isn't what I really mean. Mm -hmm. Effective solutions tend to evolve through a random process. But the beauty is that one of the ways that we arrived at effective solutions is by developing our human sense of morality. All humans have it. It does a great job of preventing us from doing those heinous things that we all know we shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. you know, Thou shalt not kill is a rule in every society. Even just lying is that people are against it in every society other than lying to tell you I like your haircut or something <laughs> which people do out of politeness. Mm -hmm. And so we use morality to guide ourselves and in fact our sense of morality evolved. But the unfortunate truth is then it allows us to look at evolutionary forces themselves and realize, gee, a lot of my underlying proclivities and tendencies aren't very moral. These are things that we as a society have to find ways to control. Mm -hmm. So um, evolution today is not, we've obviously evolved from where we were in the savannah, um, and we, we have much better quality of life, much better security in life. Um, 
thanks to things like dating apps, people have a much larger dating pool. Um, reproduction isn't as much of an issue. So these traits being passed down, it's not... Are, are we killing evolution in a way? Yeah, so evolution never stops, mm-hmm. but it can change directions. So the forces that, that um, shaped our evolution in the past are mostly not forces that matter to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Survival was enormously important force in the past, but now with modern medicine, survival is actually pretty easy, at least if you have the good fortune of living in an industrialized country. But one of the key interesting things is that we did not evolve to want to have children. Mm-hmm. Evolution, we didn't know how to have children when we needed that desire to be in place. And so, like I said earlier, evolution works through emotions. Mm-hmm. We evolved to want to have sex. Now, eventually, that always led to children in our past, but it doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. So a super interesting question is going to be, well, what will be the typical family size going forward? How will that change evolutionary forces if some people tend to want bigger families than other people do? Will that proclivity or desire or attitude tend to become more common in the future? All of these things are super hard to know. Mm-hmm. Do we have? Do you have any, where? Where do you think it could go in terms of these proclivities? If you had to guess, yeah, I'm not good at predicting <laughs> the future. If I were, I'd be a rich man. But I, I would say that the the key thing to keep in mind is that societal forces have a bigger impact on those decisions than you realize, and even just issues about convenience and the way we live. So one of the biggest factors that decreases family size is urbanization. Mm-hmm. You live out in the country. Big, lots of kids are a plus for you. They're a helper mm-hmm. on the farm, so to speak. You went to the city. Well, where, how are you going to house them? How are you going to school them? And so the world reliably shifts to much smaller families as we move into cities. And all over the world, of course, that's what's happening. So it really might be less about our evolution, more about this, the ways we choose to live that determine things like what happens to population growth, what mm-hmm. happens to average family size across the world, etc. Uh, and one thing you talk about a lot in the book is happiness. Um, the one thing I found very interesting was um, you raised this question of permanent happiness and why we can't be permanently happy and why that being permanently happy might not necessarily be a good thing. Right. So the the key to happiness is that we all tend to have a baseline happiness, and on average, that tends to be moderately happy. Mm-hmm. And that gives evolution a little bit of room to incentivize us by wanting to be happier. So if we do that, which is in our genes' best interest, we've evolved for that to make us happy. So we'll feel great when we achieve that goal that we set for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But we can't stay feeling greater. We'll never achieve anything again. We'll just be too content. So it needs to drop back down. And in fact, not only do people in general drop back down, but when we see those people who are super-duper happy in life, They tend not to earn very much later on. And they probably don't achieve much in general because they just don't really feel a need to. They're totally content the way they are. So evolution, we evolved a sense of happiness that is slightly positive because that attracts people to us. It gets us out of the bed in the morning. It gets us achieving. But we need a lot of room to get happier whenever we achieve a new goal so that we are motivated to do so. And then, unfortunately, we need to drop back to where we were so we're motivated again tomorrow or next week or whatever the case might be. Mm -hmm. So for people who read your book and understand how this evolutionary science works, um, does knowing where we came from, how we developed these behaviors help us? Does that give us a good direction where to go? How does that affect us? I think it does help us, but of course it requires a bit of self-insight. Mm-hmm. The problem with these evolutionary forces is they're often at counter-purposes to each other. And so, for example, reproduction is the currency of evolution. Without reproduction, longevity doesn't matter at all. But sometimes people's reproductive goals um, don't align with their longevity goals. Mm-hmm. It, it brings them into conflict with other people over the same partner that they mm-hmm. hope to have or whatever the case might be. 
Uh, a very common example is male risk-taking. Men tend to take bigger risks around women that they're interested in because that's a way to attract her by showing your robustness. Risk-taking is what we call an honest signal of quality mm-hmm. because if you take a big risk, you're either really skilled because you, it works out for you or you're really robust when it doesn't work out, but you jump up anyway. Mm-hmm. And so men tend to do sort of anti-survival things in order to get into the mating game. <laughs> and, and so you want to be thoughtful about, well, how does my knowledge of the past influence where I am today? And can I really step back from the situation I'm in and say, am I engaging in a behavior that's really sensible or might I be better off, you know, keeping in mind what the, these early forces are on me and trying to overcome them. Mm, sort of trying to outsmart these evolutionary impulses. Well, outsmarting them is a good way to put it, but they're, it's, it's more like thinking them through before it's too late, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly right. Absolutely. Um, so we just have one more question for you. Sure. And this is a question that we ask all the guests on our podcast. Um, since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I've been blessed with lots of great teachers. Mm-hmm. And if I think about um, my favorite teacher from my childhood, there's this wonderful woman who was a missionary to Africa when she was a little girl mm-hmm. named um, Mrs. Wacker. I don't even know her first <laughs> name, right? Because we never <laughs> called them by their first names. But um, then I was blessed in high school to have a superb teacher of the sciences. He taught me physics and chemistry um, named Putt Middleton. And he was really fabulous. He's no longer with us, but he inspired my love of science, and he's the one who kind of got me going um, down this track. Now, with that said, what I would emphasize is my father was always very keen on teaching us science. And so from when I was very little, he would tell us stories, and the, the moral of the story was always mm-hmm. a scientific one. So how did Aladdin escape the moon's orbit? I'd go, oh, how did he do that? I don't know. And so I think that really is what got me going in the first place, was this constant... Um, teaching that my father provided along this line. Mm -hmm. And got you to where you are today. Uh, Let's hope so. His help and a whole lot of other people along the way. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Totally my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.